invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to, this morning to 2 Peter chapter 2, book of 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're looking, looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1299. You know, growing up, um, I, uh, I always was kind of very straightforward in my ice cream decisions. I was a pure vanilla man. And uh, as I've gotten older, I've sort of branched out a little bit more, you know, a little pistachio here, a little coffee chip there, that sort of thing. And uh, when we were in, in uh, Southeast Asia a few years ago, they have a fruit there that is very divisive, and some of us in the room have tried it. It's called durian. And uh, durian has been described as tasting like um, a gym sock uh, with the texture of raw chicken. Um, and so it's very divisive. Some people like it, some people don't. But the, the tricky thing is um, they make durian ice cream. And uh, because of the color of durian, when you make durian ice cream, it comes out sort of a off-white, you know, maybe slightly beige color, which can very easily be uh, mistaken for vanilla. And so some people have gotten themselves into, into big trouble in that way. Um, I was thinking this week as we were as we've been making our way through Second Peter, chapter uh, second, the book of Second Peter, and especially chapter two. Um, Peter's basically sort of laying out an indictment against false teachers, and it, it might be helpful to take a step back and consider that there are many different varieties of uh, false teaching. Uh, so, false teachers, false teaching is kind of like. Baskin Robbins, you know, lots of different flavors. And the tricky thing is the ones that, that look like vanilla, they're, they're the ones that, that can trick you. They, they look like they're right, but then as soon as you put them in, their, in your mouth, you realize they're not. So without oversimplifying too much, I want to say that a lot of flavors, if you will, of, of false teaching fall into one of two categories. So you can kind of think of this as there's your, there's your ice cream and there's your gelato. They're very similar, but they kind of fall into these two categories. The first is legalism. Legalism. And this is a, a word we use to, to describe this kind of teaching that insists that in order for a person to be saved, they have to perform some kind of external work or works. So probably the most prominent example of this in the New Testament was the teaching, teaching that, that said that if, if Gentiles wanted to become Christians, they would first have to become Jewish. And so Gentile men would have to submit to Old Testament law regarding that, and uh, Gentile men and women would have to abide by Old Testament Sabbath laws and food laws and that sort of thing. And the book of Galatians is basically dedicated to dealing with that kind of, of false teaching, the, the idea that you have to do this work in order to be justified before God. And then the second variety of, of false teaching is lawlessness. Again, I'm admitting that we're oversimplifying here some, but I just want to use this as a helpful teaching tool. So lawlessness is the kind of false teaching that insists that for those who have been saved by grace, there is no need for good works. 
So lawlessness says that I am free in Christ to do whatever I please because God's grace abounds. And God will forgive me no matter what and all that sort of thing. And, and, and listen, that's true. God's grace does abound. And God is able to forgive far more than we often imagine that He is. But the problem is that lawlessness becomes an excuse for, for people to just totally neglect any, any uh, pursuit of godliness or obedience or repentance or anything like that. And so I want you to have those two categories in your mind, legalism and lawlessness, as we read this morning. And I want you to try to discern um, which of those categories do you think Peter is combating in this letter? What's he tending to, to combat, fight against, the, the strain of legalism or of lawlessness? So let's read together 2 Peter chapter uh, 2. We're going to begin kind of right in the middle of verse 10. There's, there's a new paragraph where it says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Let's pause there and pray together. Lord, um, we, we confess there's a lot going on here in this passage, and so we need your help to understand, um, to apply. And so, Lord, we pray, Spirit of God, that you would work through the word that you have inspired, that you would use it in our hearts and lives to, to awaken us to uh, the dangers of, of falling astray. And, uh, Lord, that we would have our eyes fixed on the true way of following Jesus, and we pray all this in His name. Amen. Amen. All right, so legalism or lawlessness. Just no, I'm not looking for anybody to shout out an answer, but just in your own mind, think about which kind of false teaching do you think Peter is dealing with in this letter? And before I answer that question, I want to point out that these two kinds of false teaching are not always at odds with one another. They might seem like they, they would be, but sometimes they go hand in hand. 
Uh, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned something called easy believism, which is this teaching that, that being saved is only a matter of performing an, an external work like walking an aisle, praying a prayer, that sort of thing. So instead of true repentance and faith, what is required is this very emotional decision. That's a form of legalism. It's do this external work and you'll be saved. But easy believism lends itself just as dangerously to lawlessness as it does to legalism. Because as Billy Graham put it, easy believism promises that somebody can be saved without ever being changed. That they can do this external work, walk this aisle, pray this prayer, but then they never actually have to take up their cross and deny themselves and follow Jesus. And so it says that once I've performed that external work, once I've done that thing, then I can do whatever I want because once saved, always saved, right? Now, I believe the Bible teaches that once a person is genuinely saved, that person can never lose their salvation. Jesus will never allow them to fall away in a full and final sense. But I don't believe that merely doing that kind of external action makes a person truly saved. In fact, the Bible teaches just as clearly that there will be many who make an outward profession of faith and who do those external works but who never truly belong to Jesus. It's kind of like the old joke that says, just because something is in a garage doesn't make it a car. And just because somebody comes to church and sits in a pew once a week doesn't make them a Christian. Same thing here. And that's what makes false teaching so incredibly dangerous, that, that it often convinces people that they're destined for heaven while they're actually plunging toward hell. And so the passage here uh, is, is, is a wake-up call to alarm us into realizing this danger. So, so some forms of teaching fall into both of those categories, legalism and lawlessness. But the kind Peter is addressing here, I think we can safely say is, is pure lawlessness. And the clearest summary that he, he gives is in verse 19. And this is a, a phrase that I have kept coming back to to try to make sense of what Peter is dealing with here in this letter. He says in verse 19, they promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. And I want you to just notice there that Peter could have said, they promised them freedom, but they make them to be slaves of corruption. Instead, what he says is, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. What these people are doing is they're saying, follow us, do what we're doing, and you'll have true freedom. But Peter wants us to see, no, they are slaves. So don't follow them, don't do what they're doing, because the only thing you're going to find there is entrapment and slavery. And so the imagery that he uses here is, is evocative. I, I want you to imagine, I want to try to sort of take the image that Peter uses and, and uh, make it plain. So imagine a, a wild animal, okay, that has been caught in a trap. Unless something miraculous happens, that animal's going to die because it's probably, it might bleed out. Another animal might come eat it. It might starve to death. You know, it might try to gnaw its leg off and get away, but it's, it's probably not going to make it very long. It's also possible that whoever set the trap is going to come and find it and finish it off. So imagine you've got this animal that's caught in a trap, but the animal is so rabid and so senseless that it doesn't try to escape. It doesn't try to gnaw its leg off and get away. 
Uh, instead, it just howls and screeches, not because it's in pain, but in arrogance and pride. It's, it's proud of the fact that it's in the trap. That is what Peter says the false teachers were like. He calls them in verse 12, irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. And he goes on to talk about how they boast in what they're doing. He says in the middle of verse 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, I want you to just kind of in your own mind underline that phrase as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And I want to be honest with you in saying, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I've tried. I have wrestled. I have uh, read everything I had time to read, and I still don't have a good answer. Um, the word that Peter uses for glorious ones, that the, the ESV translates glorious ones, or if you're reading NIV, I think it translates that as celestial beings. The, the word is simply glories. They, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glories. And he's just said at the beginning of verse 10 that these false teachers despise authority. So some people take the glories to be um, church leaders or, or civil authorities. And as much as Colby and I would like to think that we are glorious beings, we're not. I don't think that's what Peter had in mind. Uh, in the context, he mentions angels. And the consensus among most commentators today is that when Peter says that these false teachers do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, that what he's talking about is fallen angels or, or demons. So they, they do not tremble as they blaspheme demons. Now let's, let's imagine hypothetically that we were absolutely certain that that's what Peter means. Well, what does that mean? In what sense do these false teachers blaspheme demons? That's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Well, maybe he means that they, they deny that demons exist. Maybe he means that uh, they, they try, they, they pretend as if they have some authority over, over demons, right? That they, 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 you know, they're kind of like the sons of Sceva in the book of Acts, that they go around and they say, we have this authority to cast out demons, and instead what happens is they end up running away naked and whipped. So that's, that's possible. Uh, it's possible that, that what Peter means is, that they, the way that they toy with sin and play with sin, they, they are ignoring the fact that their open and unrepentant sin is, is leaving them open to demonic attack. Again, I don't, I don't know what Peter means by that. And so rather than trying to speculate, I think what we can do is we can glean something helpful and true without being overly precise about that exact phrase. The overarching point is that these false teachers are engaged in, in willful sin, meaning it's not like they are ignorant of the fact that what they're doing is sinful. You know, that happens sometimes, right? There, there are things that all of us do that we don't think of it in the moment as, I am sinning when I do this. If we, if we stop and step back and think about it, or if somebody comes along and tells us, we say, you know what, you're right, that was sinful. But there are times when we sin unknowingly, unwillfully. But these people, they are engaged in willful sin. They, they, they say, listen, I know that this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. Or I, I know that the Bible says this is wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to say that it's right. So they're engaged in willful sin and they are boastful about it. Again, it's one thing to, to fall inadvertently into sin. That happens to all of us. It's one thing to find yourself being tripped up by the same sin. Most people have a handful of sins in their life that they, they get tripped up by that again and again, and they struggle, they wrestle against it. 
these people, that's not what Peter's talking about here. These people are, are not falling into sin accidentally. They're not being tripped up by the same thing and being convicted by it. These people are, are shameless. They don't have any conviction about what they're doing is, is wrong. And God says in His Word that that's a sign that you're a child of God. God disciplines those whom He loves. So a sign that I'm a child of God is that when I do something wrong, and, and I know that it's wrong, that the Holy Spirit does a work in my heart to convict me and say, I'm, this was wrong, and I feel bad, and I need to apologize. I need to confess. I need to repent. These people have no conviction at all. They are sinning recklessly and arrogantly. Peter says in the middle of verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And that, that word revel is a word that he's used earlier. It's a word that means they, they're giving themselves over to, to excess, to drunkenness and to gluttony. Um, and they're doing so, as he says, in the daytime. Not, not, not to mean that it's okay if you wait until the sun goes down to get drunk or to be a glutton or something like that, but to say these people are engaged in it in such an open and shameless way that they don't, they don't even wait till the sun goes down. You know, when they're, when they're supposed to be working and for fulfilling their responsibilities during the day, they're, they're going out and they are reveling in the daytime. They're getting drunk. They're, they're, you know, eating too much, that sort of thing. Verse 14 says, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. The, the phrase he uses there, it means that everywhere they look, they see potential adultery. Every person they look at, they see as a potential partner in adultery. So they are absolutely insatiable for, for excessive alcohol and food and sex. And not only that, but also money. He says in the middle of verse 14, they have hearts trained in greed. It's like their hearts go to the gym to get trained in greed. That's how... That's how entrenched they are in this sin. He even uses the Old Testament example of Balaam. He mentions Balaam there, and if you're like, I don't know what he's talking about there. He says something about a speechless donkey. Is there anything other than a speechless donkey? Well, one time there was something other than a speechless donkey. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 22, verses 24. But the, the gist of it is, there's a false prophet named Balaam, uh, and, and a foreign king says, I'll pay you to go and curse Israel. And he says, all right. I'll take the money. So he takes the money, he gets on his donkey, and he goes to curse Israel. And while he's on the way, the donkey sees an angel in the path that's waiting to kill him. And the donkey says, I'm not going any further. And, and Balaam gets mad. He gets upset with the donkey. And so the point of the story is the donkey had more sense than the false prophet. This is the guy who claims to have all this spiritual insight. He claims to be able to speak these truths that will come to pass, but instead it's the donkey that has more sense. And that's Peter's point about these false teachers, that donkeys have more sense than they do. Donkeys have enough sense that if they get caught in a trap, they try to get out of it. But these people don't even try to get out of the trap. They're like rabid, senseless animals. What's worse, he says at the end of verse 13, they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. While they feast with you, that is, while they feast with you, the church... These folks are living in bold, 
and willful sin, gluttony, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, greed, and they're doing all these things while they feast with you, while they gather with the church, while they eat fellowship meals with you, while they take the Lord's Supper with you. They're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to conceal it. They, don't, they are open and boastful about this stuff, and yet they're still coming to your gathering, sitting with you, listening to the apostles' teaching, taking the Lord's Supper with you, and that is, in Peter's mind, it seems, the worst thing of all. Now, the Bible is very clear. And I, I want us to make a distinction here between the kind of people that these false teachers were and, and other kinds of sinners, okay? The Bible is very clear that we should be compassionate with those who are struggling. Uh, God tells us in Jude 22, "...have mercy on those who doubt." Have mercy on those who doubt. So it's not that everybody has to be totally confident. It's not that everybody has to have it totally together. There is a sense in which there are people who are struggling and we're told to have mercy on them. And how many times in the New Testament does God tell us to be patient and to be gentle with one another, to be meek toward one another, even when we have to correct one another? Even when there is someone among us who, who is in sin, be patient with them. Be gentle with them as the Lord has been patient with you. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also should forgive one another. Galatians 6, 1, 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, correct them in a spirit of gentleness. So the idea in Galatians 6, 1 is if, if there's somebody that you know who, who professes to be a believer and yet they are, they are trapped in a pattern of sin. They're caught in transgression. They're like the wild animal who's in the trap, but they're not, they're not boasting about it. They're hurting. Peter says, excuse me, Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, you who are spiritual, you who have the Spirit, you who are fellow believers, go to them and correct them with a spirit of gentleness. Go and get them out of the trap, but do it carefully because... You might be tempted in the same way. Be careful when you go get them out of the trap that you don't get stuck in the trap yourself. That's the idea. So, so do that in humility. Do that in patience. Do that in gentleness. But what Peter's talking about here in 2 Peter 2 is not that. These false teachers, they're not doubting. They're not asking questions. They're not struggling against some stubborn sin. These people are recklessly and arrogantly engaged in open and willful sin. They're saying, we don't care what the Bible says. We're going to do what we want to do. They're boasting about it, and they are enticing others to join them in it, which is why Peter warns us so strongly. Look at what he says of them in verse 17. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. What does it mean to be a waterless spring? It means that you have the appearance of being able to satisfy when you're really empty and dry. Mists driven by a storm. Mists driven by a storm don't, don't actually bring life-giving rain. They just cause confusion. They just kind of blow smoke in your face and get you disoriented. The problem is these people claimed to be able to give life. Instead, they're empty. They're like a waterless spring or mist. They essentially said, follow us if you want to have your thirst satisfied. In reality, they're leading people away from the fountain of living waters and toward broken cisterns. Verse 18, 
for speaking loud boasts of folly. Again, these are not people who are quietly, humbly struggling. He says they are speaking loud boasts of folly. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. These people are not sort of, you know, in their own quiet way saying, I've been struggling with this same sin. I know it's wrong. I keep falling and I need help. That's not what they're saying. If that's, if that's who we're dealing with, then the Bible says we should be patient with them, we should have mercy on them, be compassionate toward them. These people are not saying, you know, I've been struggling with some doubts about what I believe. If that's what they were saying, then according to Jude 22, we should have mercy on them and be patient with them. These people are, are instead standing up either figuratively or literally and saying, I have a better way to live the Christian life than what the apostles have taught us. I have a better way to live the Christian life than what the Bible says. You can live however you want. You can do whatever you want. You can pursue pleasure and satisfy all your desires because God's grace abounds. And there won't be any kind of judgment. So don't worry about judgment. Let, let's, don't, let's, don't, let's don't bother with calling things sin. Let's just let people do what they want. They're your desires after all. Who can question your desires, right? So just live according to your desires. Do what you want and God's grace will abound. This was a distortion of Christian freedom. Again, Peter says in verse 19, they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They are luring people into the same trap in which they have been snared. And in particular, Peter says that they, they were having influence over believers who were less mature. He says back in verse 14, they entice unsteady souls. Unsteady, those who have not been as firmly established as others. And in verse 18, he says, they entice those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So these are believers who have just professed faith in Christ. Or maybe they, they may even be people who, who are on the verge of professing faith in Christ and yet they are listening to these other people who claim to be Christians and who read from the Bible and who talk about Jesus, and it sounds good. It sounds really appealing because what it means is I can follow Jesus and I don't have to stop sinning in this way. I don't have to stop living in this unrepentant sin. That seems like win-win, right? This is why false teaching is so immensely dangerous because it... It gives us promises that it can't deliver on. I want, I want us just to let verses 20 and 21 sit on our hearts this morning for a moment. Peter says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than, knowing, than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, there's a way you could really twist Peter's words here and say, you know what? It sounds like what he's saying is 
it'd be better off if we didn't share the gospel with unbelievers and they just kind of stay the way they are. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is it would be better for somebody to know that they're an unbeliever than to think mistakenly that they're a believer, right? Because if, if someone knows they're an unbeliever and they, they hear the gospel, they might be inclined to listen to it. They might be inclined to repent and trust in Christ. They, they, they might be like the person who, who knows they have cancer and they might be inclined to receive the treatment that the doctor offers. But if someone has been led to a false sense of assurance, if they think I'm perfectly healthy, there's nothing wrong with me at all, then they're not going to listen to the doctor's uh, treatment regimen. They're not going to listen to the gospel. They're not going to feel any need to repent and to trust in Christ. That's what Peter's talking about there in verses 20 and 21. That These are people who, who maybe have, have just professed faith in Christ or they're right on the verge of professing faith in Christ. And what these people are doing is they're, they're essentially saying, hey, we can get you out of, out of that dungeon that you're living in. But the dungeon that they're offering them escape from is not the dungeon of sin. It's the dungeon of, of what they think is an infringement on their freedom. They say, come on, we'll, we'll get you out of there. And all, all instead what they're doing is they're just they're putting more chains on them. They're tightening the chains they're already in. There's a lot to process here. And um, one verse that I kept coming uh, back to this week as I was sort of thinking through this was James 3, 1, uh, where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Um, so so that, there's a warning here for people like me and, and Colby and others. Um, but the warning is not only for teachers, it's for all of us. Because again, Peter is not just saying these false teachers are slaves of corruption. That's part of what he wants to, to see, that they themselves are in, in eternal peril if they don't turn from their way. But he also wants to, he's, the reason he's telling us that is so that we will see the danger of, of following them. And so he says throughout these two letters that he wants to stir us up not just teachers, but all of us, to be sober-minded and to be alert. So, so what are some practical ways that we can respond um, this morning? I want to suggest two takeaways for us, two practical things for us to consider. First is that God's people are called to lives of discipleship. God's people are called to lives of discipleship. Peter says that the, the people most susceptible to the bait that, that was being laid out by the false teachers are those who are unsteady. So that's a reminder to us that the best way to guard against, against error, whether that error is, is doctrinal or moral, in other words, whether it has to do with teaching or with practice, the best way to guard against error is to be established in the truth. Paul says in Colossians 2, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the goal, is to be established in the faith. And this goes all the way back to the Great Commission, where Jesus, with all the authority of heaven and earth, commands us 
to make disciples of all nations. It's been said a million times, but what Jesus tells us to do in the Great Commission is not to, to, to get people to make decisions, but it is for us to make disciples, which means that we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we, we, we fold them into a church where they can be a part of the family of God, and he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. When I say that God's people are called to lives of discipleship, I mean that we are called to be disciples of Jesus, and we're called to make disciples of Jesus. This means that we never, ever reach a point when we can stop growing. We never, ever reach a point this side of heaven when we can stop progressing, stop being sanctified. And, and the, the, the path of, of progress and sanctification is not this kind of just steady, unbroken line. It is, you know, it takes twists and turns, and sometimes it goes backwards and forward. We always need to be reminded. Um, we're always in need of being reminded. That's what Peter says that this letter serves to do, is to stir us up by way of reminder. We're always in need of being more firmly established. We're always in need of, of growing in our capacity, not just to know all that Jesus has commanded us, but to observe. He doesn't just say, teach them all I've commanded you. He says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So every one of us is called to, to that lifelong path of discipleship, and, and every one of us is called to make disciples of others. To, to help them be more firmly established and to help them grow in their capacity to know and to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. So, you know, for those of us who have kids at home, that's where our mission field begins. I mean, that's been one of the biggest things that God has awakened me to in the past five and a half years is that our home is a mission field. We have two little bitty people who live in our house and our job, our God-given job, is to make disciples of them, to, to raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so for those of you who have kids at home, that's where it starts. For those of you who are going to have kids at home one day, that's where it's going to start. For others of us, discipleship takes place primarily in the context of the church. It's, why, it's one reason why we're, we're intentional to, to make sure that people of different age groups interact with one another. You know, because um, Titus 2 lays out this vision of church life in which older men are sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And those older men urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So that, that happens in the context of the church where older men have an opportunity to live out lives of, of godliness and of, of a love for the Lord and of love for their family, and then they urge the younger men to do the same thing. And the same goes for women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women. So this, this discipleship that we're all called to, it happens in our homes, it happens in the church. So let me just ask you, this is something that I want all of us to, to consider. What are you doing to grow as a disciple of Jesus. I don't care if you've been a disciple of Jesus for 10 days or 10 years or 50 years. What are you doing to grow as a disciple of Jesus? And what are you doing to help others grow 
in the same way. God's people are called to lives of discipleship. The second sort of practical takeaway for us is that, that true freedom is found in grace-enabled obedience to Jesus. True freedom is found in grace-enabled obedience to Jesus. We live in a society that values freedom, and that's great. We should. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have Veterans Day where we remember those who have uh, given some of them their life in a sense of unto death, and some of them have given their life in the sense of many years of service so that we can enjoy freedom. Sometimes, however, we're in danger of having more of an American understanding of freedom than a biblical understanding of freedom. And true, genuine gospel freedom is not me being able to do do whatever I want to do. It is me submitting what I want to do to Jesus. I, I can remember several years ago, I was at a conference, and I remember hearing... Uh, John Piper used this illustration. Um, the gist of it went like this. I, I, I won't try to you know, quote it verbatim or anything like that, but the gist of it was, imagine there's a train, and it's chugging along through the countryside. It's just out in the country, and the train is going on the tracks, and it looks out on this pasture of cows. And the train thinks to itself, oh, what I would give to leave these tracks behind and be free like those cows. The problem is the train was designed to move on the tracks. And if the train tries to be something other than what it was created to be, if it tries to derail itself, it's not going to get very far, is it? It's going to lead to destruction. It's not going to be free because there aren't tracks out there in the pasture. And so it would find itself stuck and unable to do what it was made to do. The kind of of freedom that these false teachers were promising and that many people still promise today was a mirage. It was waterless springs. It was a distortion of genuine gospel freedom. Peter said in his first letter, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So yes, if you are in Christ, you have been set free. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But you have been freed not to use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Not to just say, okay, well, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. But you are now free from sin, from the power and the hold of sin, to live as a servant of God. We find authentic freedom not by giving in to every desire of the flesh, that's not freedom. That is slavery. If, if I give in to every desire of the flesh, I'm proving that I'm still a slave to sin. Not that I've been set free, but that I'm a slave to my own sinful desires. So we find freedom. We, fri- we find true freedom when we live according to the purpose for which God created us and the purpose for which Jesus died for us. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. And uh, this is an opportunity for us to respond to the Word of God. As I was, you know, getting my heart ready this morning, um, uh, a hymn came to mind. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to quote it. Um, It's an old hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? The third verse, he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. 
Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? The question that I was pondering as I thought about that is, how many people want to have their chains taken off, they want to be free, but they don't want to leave the dungeon of sin and follow Jesus. And that's what he invites us to do. He comes in and fills the dungeon with light. The chains fall off, our hearts are free, and we can rise and go forth and follow him. So let's do that. Let's, not, let's don't stay in the dungeon of sin, but let's walk in the light of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that by your cross and resurrection you have made every provision for us to be freed from our bondage to sin. Lord Jesus, that you have redeemed us by your own precious blood. And so, God, I pray that you would work through your word to convict us of our sin. Lord, I'm, I'm aware that there may be some here today who they are your children And as I've been speaking this morning, you have been working through your spirit to convict them of some sin that they have been wrestling with, some sin that has taken a foothold in their life. And I pray, Lord, that your word would be a warning to them not to continue to to stay in that, but, Lord, that they would walk in the path of light and follow you. And, Lord, perhaps there are some who have heard my voice today who they right now are still in the dungeon of sin. They are still in their chains And Lord, through the gospel, you have offered them a key. And so, Lord, I pray that they would receive it by faith, that they would receive it in repentance, in a genuine desire to leave that slavery and to walk in the freedom that you offer by being your servant. So, God, would you move in us? Would you help us to respond rightly? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.